if we could try and transform that and shift that into a new paradigm, the paradigm that we see Jesus walk on earth with. And I think that if we could do this, that the way that we spoke and the way that we act and dealt with certain situations, that I think it would all change. And I really think that it would help to develop a lifestyle that was more like Jesus. So that we would live like Jesus. That we would love like Jesus. That we would speak and see and interpret things through an internal filter in the same way that Jesus did. And I believe that when we can do that, that life's challenges, they get a lot less challenging. Because we are here for but a moment. And if you can look at your situation and the hard times that you're going through and the struggles and the storms that you're going through in light of eternity, then you can deal with what's happening for a a brief moment. Because when we look at the situations that we we're going through in life, it seems like it lasts for an eternity. But the truth is, it's not even close. And the life that we can live, much like the life we see Jesus live out, can be completely different if we would have a perspective of heaven. So this morning we're going to be in Luke uh, chapter 23. It's going to start in verse uh, 39. Now the context of this story, this is one of the greatest exchanges, I believe, um, inside of the Bible. And it's between Jesus and a thief. Jesus is literally hanging on the cross. And even in this state, Even in the pain and the anguish that he's dealing with, he has this incredible conversation with a thief. And so in Luke 23, uh, 39, this is what it says through 42. Then one of the criminals who was hanging blasphemed him, blasphemed Jesus, saying, if you are the Christ, save yourself and us. Nice that he added himself in there too. But, But the other answering rebuked him and said, do you not even fear God? Seeing that you are under the same condemnation, and, and we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, personally, I don't think that this thief, he even really knew what he was saying here. I think when he uttered out these words, kingdom, I don't think he really understood what he was asking the Lord. I don't think when he says the word, remember me, that he really had a clue about what he was saying. And Jesus' response to him in verse 43 is so amazing because he says, and Jesus said to him, assuredly, Jesus is hanging on the cross. His body is mutilated, he's broken, he's bleeding, and he is bringing comfort and assurance to a criminal who deserves the penalty that he is receiving. He should be there. And Jesus, who shouldn't be there, he's the one who has the perspective because his perspective is of heaven and not of earth. So he has this perspective that allows him to bring comfort and assurance. I mean, this is the gospel of grace in a nutshell right here. That even though somebody deserves death and are in the midst of dealing with the condemnation that they deserve because of what they have done, that Jesus goes to this person and says, assuredly, for sure, there is no doubt that you will be with me today. And I believe that the Bible, when it was written, that it was inspired by God. And we believe that as a church. So when he speaks out a word, and it's a different word than what you thought it would be, it is intentional. So what Jesus says here, he replaces the word heaven with the word paradise. 
And so this morning we're going to talk about that. Why in the world did Jesus use the word paradise instead of the word heaven? Because he didn't have to. He could have said, you will be with me today in heaven. And that would have totally made sense. Yet he doesn't. He says something else. He says, assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. One more verse I want to go to this morning. Uh, It's in the last book of the Bible. Um, in Revelation, and if you can't find that, I don't know what to tell you. It's the last book in the Bible. Um, but this is um, actually hearing and seeing Jesus say this, and this is what it says. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Would you start with prayer with me? Father, we thank you so much for this day. God, we thank you that uh, you you do reveal what heaven is like to us, Lord. And you don't do it so that we could check out or we could just hope one day that that's where we're going to go. So we don't really have a mission on earth, Lord. But it should inspire us. That it should put us on mission to tell the world around us about who you are and what is prepared for those who love you. Lord, I pray that um, everything that we hear today through your word would bring hope to our lives, Lord, that would clear the skies and, and the darkness that we see surrounding us sometimes, Lord, that it would give us true hope in you. Lord, that through looking through a paradigm or a perspective of heaven and eternity, that we truly would become more like you, Jesus. Lord, so we ask these things and we believe them in your name. And everyone said... Amen. How many here are parents or have been parents or um, want to be parents, aspiring parents? Okay. Um, You all know, and and even if you aren't a parent, you sort of know that uh, you can't really prepare for parenthood. Like being a parent, you just sort of can't. It's sort of like marriage. You can't really prepare for being married, but that's a whole different subject that we can talk about a different time. But just this idea of trying to prepare for uh, the uniqueness, the adventures, the um, cut, your kid cutting their hand at like two o'clock in the morning when they fell out of bed and you're like, oh my gosh, what do I do? Or they've got a fever and you're trying to figure out, is this normal or is my kid about to die? Like, you just, you can't really prepare for this. And it's very nice that we actually have nine months to prepare for that. I'm so glad that um, upon inception that babies don't just like show up. That, that way, we got time to prepare and try and cram our brains full of classes and books and advice from other people to try and prepare for this amazing feat and probably the most challenging task that anyone could ever have to go through. Um, but when you when you're pregnant, you're you, when you're pregnant, like I was pregnant. I like saying that because I went through it with my wife. Um, but. The main question that I think we asked and we were thinking throughout the pregnancy was, what are they going to look like? Did you ever think that? What, what are they going to look like? What is their hair going to look like? What are they going to sound like when they talk? Or, or how are they going to, what's their personality going to be like? Are they going to be funny? Are they going to be serious? Are they going to be smart? And you think of all these things and then the baby comes out and you're looking at the baby and I'm looking at my son and I'm like, oh my goodness, this is a little me. <laughs> And as they're growing up, I've got an eight-year-old, and I'm looking at him thinking, wow, like, I see myself, and I think this is probably what twins probably feel like a little bit. You're like, oh my goodness, this is another me right here. 
but then you like have your second and, and, or you have your third or fourth or fifth for some people, but we only went with two because we got the boy and the girl and we're like, we're done. Yes. Um, but then you start to realize, okay, look at your wife, look at yourself, maybe get the family together. hope they don't look like that one uncle, but, um, you get everyone else together and say, okay, we can sort of figure out this is what little boy or little girl is going to look like. And it's not as hard, not as complicated. DNA is a powerful thing. It's not as complicated as, as you might think. And I think similarly, with when it comes to heaven, a lot of people think it's very hard to know what is heaven going to be like? How do I wrap my mind around heaven, eternity? And I understand that is hard outside of time. We don't understand that. But um, when you look at it, we, we see it as ethereal or, or ambiguous or abstract, sort of like a, a Huggies commercial meets a Tide commercial. And you got babies and you got really clean white robes and you put them together and the babies are are playing harps on clouds and you, you can't really understand that and you're trying to wrap your head around what in the world does heaven look like do i just sit there comatose and like pop bonbons all day like how how is it supposed to look but if the million dollar question for a parent is what is that baby gonna look like i think the million dollar question for christians is what is heaven gonna look like And I think there's a little bit of a clue or a glimpse or a flick in a long film that is just for a moment that we can get an idea a little bit of what heaven looks like if you just look around. If you look around and see the people, because the Bible says at the end of the age that Jesus will finally come back. And in Revelation 21, it actually says there will be a new heaven and there will be a new earth. Uh, last week, we talked about how we're going to be here for such a brief amount of time. And, and that's true because the sin and, and the fallen state of the world that we live in, yes, that will all be gone. And we will be leaving that scenario and, and that reality. But the truth is that the Bible says that heaven one day will invade earth. God will establish his throne and we will live forever, live out our eternity on this new redeemed earth um you can actually get an idea of somewhat what heaven eternity will look like by just looking around at the beginning of the biblical narrative uh, god says something about the actual planet earth in the book of genesis he says something about the trees and the mountains and the lakes and the sky and, and the birds in the hebrew it reads a little bit different than what we would read in the english because in the hebrew we read it and god says it is good Sort of like when you say, hey, I passed my test or my exam. Oh, good. Hey, I got new shoes. Good. <laughs> hey, the Cardinals won today. Hey, good. You guys are all really shocked I said that. I, I, I know. <laughs> but in the Hebrew, it means it is very, very passionately good. It's not just this nonchalant sort of off the cuff type of, oh, good. It's. Oh my goodness, this is the best thing ever. This is perfect. And God calls the planet Earth good, just as he creates us good. But I want you to see what happens. In the book of Romans 8, 19 through 23, it speaks about the Earth and what happened to it. It says, For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, that's depravity or sin, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. 
Now, listen to this and read this with me. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also who have, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan with our grown within ourselves, eagerly awaiting for the adoption, the redemption of our bodies. It's actually talking about the rocks, the trees, the mountains, that they, they groan, they, they cry out with us for this redemption because the planet was made good, but it was brought under a curse by those who populate it because of the free will choice that we have and rejected God with. And as a result, the earth will be made new again, just like you and I will be made new again, because as we were purchased and redeemed, the old will pass away. And the Bible says that all things will become new. That's in Revelation 21, 5. It says, and he who sat on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. That word uh, is uh, kainos, which means to refresh, to renew, or to reuse. So one day the earth will be made new. It will be made good again. And the planet that we see will be spotless. It will be glorified. And God, once again, will call it very very good. So if you like hiking, if you like water, if you like mountains, then you've got a good place to go. And if you don't like those things, there's other things that you're going to love too that God has made that you will enjoy. Um, but please understand that as we are going through this series, we're never going to know everything about heaven. First uh, Corinthians 2, 9 says, but it is written, I has not seen nor ear has heard nor have entered into the hearts of man the things which God has prepared For those who love him. So we're not going to get very far today, nor will we get very far in the next 80 years trying to contemplate this idea of infinity or exactly what's going to happen. But we can have a glimpse. One scholar, he said, heavenly is far more earthy than we could ever know. Because we know at the end of the age, there will be a new heaven and a new earth. So everything will look somewhat earth-like. It'll be somewhat familiar to you and to me. One example of this is the glorified body of Jesus Christ. When you look throughout the Bibles, Jesus, we know, was the prototype. We will all be resurrected and we'll all have glorified bodies. We'll probably be 21, uh, forever 21, even though we won't shop at forever 21 because that wouldn't be heaven. That would be somewhere else. Uh, But... But Jesus, we know, is the first glorified body. In 1 Corinthians 15, 23, this is what it says. But there is an order to this resurrection. Christ has been raised as the first of the harvest. Then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. And actually records throughout the Gospels, Luke and John record interaction between Jesus and people in his glorified body. A couple of weeks ago, we were talking about when the disciples were hiding up in the the upper room after Jesus had died. And they're sitting around. They're having this pity party. Jesus shows up in his glorified body in the middle of the room. It says that he walked through walls, but he's just standing there. And the disciples, they're looking. They don't even know what to do. Like, they're just dumbfounded. They're looking at him like... Oh my goodness. And they recognized him, but kind of not. It's sort of like, have you ever like seen somebody and you're like, I totally know who you are, but I 
don't quite remember, or you shaved, or you lost a bunch of weight, or, or you dyed your hair, or you don't have glasses on anymore, and you're like, I know who you are, but kind of not. And, and then you look at the disciples, and they go fishing, and when they are like, forget this whole thing, we're going back to what we know, and we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Um, but Jesus says, hey, cast your nets on the other side, and so then they come in, and one of them says, that's the Lord, and they're like, oh my gosh, and Peter jumps out of the, the boat into the water, and everyone else just sort of rows next to him because Peter's so emotional. Um, But they're eating on the shore and none of them want to say this is Jesus because they know it's him. They're pretty sure it's him. They're like 99.9% sure, but he's there and they're like, it's him, but it's not. Why? Because he was in his glorified body. He was the same, but he was different. And I think that this tells us a lot about eternity and resurrection and, and how things will be the same, but they will be different. Because even Jesus, he says, look, look, look at my scars. Look, look at the gash in my side. And, and they're touching the gash, but they still, they're not fully buying it. So Jesus even goes as far as he says, okay, well, I'm really hungry. Can you give me something to eat? And they're staring at him, watching him eat. How awkward would that be? Like, he's sitting there, they're like, he took another bite. Oh my gosh, he's chewing a fish. This is what it says. It says in Luke 24, 41 and 42, um, but while they still did not believe for joy, okay, so we know they didn't believe because the Bible said, they they can't wrap their minds around it. But why, why they still did not believe for joy and marveled, he said to them, have you any food here? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb. You know what this tells me? We get to eat and have dessert in heaven. However, you don't get the calories in heaven. Amen? So we get food in heaven. You can enjoy food. If you like to make food, you can prepare food in heaven. That's what I, I think we're seeing is that we, as the Lord and his glorified body, he eats. I think we will be able to too. But imagine the food. In an unpolluted, always ripe, perfectly made type of way. And you can eat as much as you want. You'll never like have the day after Thanksgiving when you're like, please let me die here because I am in so much pain. You're, you're not going to have that. It'll, it'll be perfect and you'll be able to experience whatever, whenever you want, forever. Um, I want to go through uh, the book of Revelation. Um, in Revelation 21, verses 1 through 2, I want to go through this whole thing where, where John is experiencing heaven and the colliding of heaven into earth and the newness that happens. This is what it says. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. I guess we don't have a sea. But um, it says, Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, John is describing exactly what he sees, and he sees this amazing picture of the new aid and heaven and earth colliding into forever for us. But John says that he sees a literal, tangible, beautiful city, and he describes this city. And we know that Scripture interprets Scripture. We don't interpret Scripture ourselves, but we allow the Bible to interpret itself. Um, So when it talks about about this city, and you're thinking, what is this talking about? And it actually explains a lot of what Abraham saw 
in the Old Testament and it's told to us in the book of Hebrews because it talks about Abraham seeing a city as well. And then John sees a city. So Abraham, thousands of years before, it talks about him, how he saw a city and he was waiting for the city whose foundations were made by God. And then John sees at the end of time and there's a city again that is heaven. And so this is what it says in Hebrews eleven ten, talking about what Abraham said. It's a, for he waited for the city which has for foundations whose builder and maker is God. What Abraham saw, what we can now know because scripture interprets scripture, is that it is a literal, tangible city that we will live in in the end of the age. In Re- Revelation, it goes in to describe the beauty of the city and the streets of gold and the, the gems, the precious gems that we'll see in this actual city. There will be locations in heaven that, I mean, there, who knows? There might be an upgraded, updated Maui that we can all go to. I mean, wouldn't that be amazing? Uh, there, there's a city, so there's locations that we can enjoy. And going on in verse 3, it says, And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they, will be, they shall be his people God himself will be, be with them and be their God. And God will wipe every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, and John actually sees this happening, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, write down these words which are faithful or true and faithful. If you want to know what heaven is going to be like, just look around for a minute. It's not this idea of, of oh my gosh, like it's, it's so weird and, and there's babies on clouds and we're just going to sit there and in nothingness floating throughout space. If you want to know what heaven's going to look like, look around. Because everything will be made new. And when I say new, I mean that the way God intended for you and for me to be before the fall. Not with your arthritis. Not with your troubles hearing or seeing or breathing or walking. Not dealing with your diabetes or the sickness that keeps ailing you. Not struggling with your way. It's, it's none of those things. It's saying God will make you and I new. That we won't be dealing with those things. And, and you'll look in the mirror when you're in heaven and you'll look at yourself and you'll say, I knew that something was wrong, that there was something different. And, and you'll actually see the way that God created you to be from the very beginning. You'll see yourself in perfection. And you'll just know that this is right. And it will click and we'll understand before the curse, before the world was subject and our bodies were subject to being fallen, that this is the way that things were supposed to be and all things will be right. It goes on in verses 6 and 7 and it says, And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the fountain of, of the waters of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things. And I will be his, their God, and they will be my son. And how amazing would it be if we could consider this more in our lives? How amazing would it be if we could walk our lives out, understanding what heaven's going to be like? And, and it blows me away that we give so little consideration to what heaven is going to be. 
And, and it's easy to think of, of heaven as just this abstract place, but I don't think this is what God intended for us. I, I don't think that's why Revelation was written and, and there's pictures and glimpses and snippets of, of heaven throughout the Bible. I don't think that's the reason that God gave it to us because the picture and the promise is, is that we should just look at those things and we should look at what heaven's going to do for us and, and be for us and it should motivate us to our mission here on earth. That we should say, I have to tell people about this. I have to show them the good news of the gospel and what God has for those who will call on his name. And then it talks about, let's get back to this word paradise because we haven't gotten to that yet. And I sort of want to close with this. So why in the world does Jesus use this word? Um, if you are more familiar with Jewish culture and the Jewish language, it's actually the word that he uses there is a Persian word. And the word uh, paradise it is used three times in the New Testament. Once is on the cross. Another time is in Revelation, which we read. And then there's one more time in, in Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 4. He's caught up into heaven as well. And he also calls it paradise. Now, the word that's used here, it's actually not a Hebrew word. It's a Persian word. And the word means garden. And in the Old Testament, when you find this word used, it's used 31 times in 22 of the 32 times it's in reference to the Garden of Eden. Interesting. Um, so Jesus says this, and the hearers would immediately think of the beginning of time. They would immediately think of the beginning of the biblical narrative where God's plan was originally established for us forever. See, Eden was never made as a temporary place for man to live in. It was a garden that was meant to be forever. And now Jesus is living and he's hanging on this cross in a compromised, polluted planet because of the free will choice of men, which was supposed to be paradise, but is no longer paradise. And because of man's choice, we were removed from paradise and the garden. And there were guards that were placed with flaming swords, angels, giant angels, so that man had no chance of ever getting back in this garden. Okay, so that's what was happening. Jesus is there and he speaks out this word, you shall be with me again in the garden. And who does he speak it to? He speaks it to a thief. So here's the picture that's being painted here. We have three characters hanging on a tree. James, could you come up now? I know I told you to come up in a little bit, but if you could come up now. We have three characters hanging on trees. You have Jesus on one tree, and you have two criminals on the other trees. And this is such a picture of all of humanity. Because you have Jesus hanging from a tree. You've got one criminal who says, I don't need you, Jesus. I don't need you, God. It represents so many people that we see in the world today. It's such a picture of humanity. And then on the other side, you see people who are saying, I need you more than anything. Who's saying, please, please remember me. And remember, everything started on a tree. Everything started with two trees in the garden. The garden, the tree of good and evil, knowledge of good and evil, and the tree of life. And now we have a tree, and the Savior of the world is hanging on that tree. And one criminal who deserves death, who deserves everything that he's getting, who deserves because of the sins that he's committed, he's hanging on that tree and he looks at the end of his life, not because of what he's done or because he's gone to church enough or because he knows enough songs or memorized enough Bible verses, but he's hanging on that tree, having done nothing except for say to Jesus, I need you. And in that one moment, 
the Savior who is hanging on a tree because of the sins that that person had committed and this person had committed and that I have committed. And because of what you have committed, he's hanging there and he looks at this thief and he says, I promise you most assuredly. You will be in paradise today. What he's saying is that there is a garden and it is guarded by a giant scary angel. And because of just the crying out of a thief who deserved nothing, because he said, God, I need you. Jesus is going to say to that angel, you step aside. For this person is worthy. For this person can now enter the kingdom of heaven. They will have eternity forever with God. So what is heaven like? It, it's, heaven is paradise. If you go back to Genesis 1 and 2, it's God's plan forever. And look what was there. And all of a sudden, when you really start to look and say, oh my goodness, God, Jesus on the cross, he's saying, this is paradise. It's the garden. It's the beginning. It's what God intended from the very beginning. When you can look at that, then things stop being so abstract. They stop being so weird. And and, and you can actually understand and and get an idea of, okay, I know what heaven's going to be like. I know what I'm looking forward to. And then at the very end in Revelation 22, John actually speaks of a tree in heaven. And he speaks of the tree that was in the beginning. We're talking about the beginning and the end. That that what God had for the beginning will show up in the end. In Revelation 22, 1 through 3, it says, And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the midst of the streets. Now, did you hear that? Eternity will have streets. Why in the world do we need streets if all we're going to do all day is float on clouds? Right? There will be locations. There will be things that we can do. There will be um, singing. There will be arts. What we'll pottery in heaven. Asa and Daisy will be teaching us all pottery in heaven. It's going to be awesome. goes on and says, And on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, and there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. We're going to have purpose in heaven. You're not just going to sit around for eternity having no clue what to do. You will have purpose. You will have roles. There will be projects and they will be amazing and fulfilling and exhilarating projects that you and I will be able to fulfill. And and all of these things will be happening because we're serving the one who made it, who made us. We'll be serving him in heaven. And you'll have a relationship with God there. And it won't just be like, okay, I got 10 minutes for you. So let's hurry up and talk. There's no time in heaven. You'll be able to be with him forever. And I'll be able to be with him forever. It's not like, okay, well, there's X amount of people. So I get my lot here and you get your lot here. And once every like 10 million years, then I'll be able to talk to God. You'll get to talk to him every day. Because listen to what it says. In Revelation 24, there is an amazing thing that it says. And uh, I skip over it almost every single time. But John, he makes this statement as if it's a big deal. And what he says in Revelation 22, 4 is, they shall see his face. You're going to see his face, not a veiled 
shadow or dimension of who he is, not a, a cloaked version or the backside like Moses saw. You will not just see an aspect of him. You will see him. What that means is that you shall truly know him. The Bible says that now we see dimly, but then we will see face to face. And the face of God that you and I see will be so beautiful. It will be so magnificent. Magnificent! It will be so inspiring that you and I will wonder, have I ever truly lived? This is heaven. And if I know all these things about heaven and I can come to the reality that, that my life here on earth, it's pretty insignificant compared to what I get forever. Then regardless of what I'm going through and regardless of what you're going through, we should have the strength to tell other people about all the great things that God has prepared for them, just like he's prepared for us. Would you pray with me?